Welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are discussing the fourth section of VRT. We've gotten into the mysteries and obfuscations phase of this story. So I think there's going to be quite a lot to talk about in addition to all of the sociological and political philosophy stuff that we got in the interrogation last time. So, uh, Brandon, why don't you get us into this? There is an awful lot going on in this section, as our listeners will have heard in our recap episode we learned a lot about the past two novellas, about the connection between all three of the stories, but also Wolf is digging into theories of government, biology, and even engaging with shades of meaning regarding slavery. It's a real juicy section of the story, and there's a lot to go over, but I think our best bet here is to run through some of what is revealed to us about the past two books first, then discuss the other thematic topics. There's more in this section than we'll be able to get into in our discussion. So as I said, closing out our recap episode in this section, I really hope our listeners will take this opportunity to join us on the forums for some additional items of interest that I'm sure people will be pulling their hair out that we're not talking about. Yeah, these sections are just getting so big. We're doing massive chunks of this novel all at once, and we are simply having to elide and, and skip some things in order to, to fit it all in, uh, in uh, something that doesn't take up your entire commute to work uh, all week. Right. You got to save time for some music. Uh, so <laughs> jumping into the discussion here, the first thing I want to talk about is the tour of Frenchman's Landing and the River Tempest and the ocean. We're given a lot of context and a new perspective on the area where a story by John V. Marsh ends. We see the temple or the observatory, as it's called, of Eastwind's people. And we're told that rather than having a sophisticated astrological belief or system, they're merely using the trees as a way of marking time, like a calendar. We also see the pit where Sandwalker's group was kept before they were sacrificed to the god by Eastwind's people, and learn that there are stories that are consistent with a story by VRT about how the first contact on St. Anne took place involving the earth people finding a body floating in the water, though we discussed in the recap how that story is a bit of a whisper down the lane event as well. We understand, we get the motivation as to why Dr. Marsh wants to see this sacred cave, which is to discover any cave paintings or skeletons of dead abos. And we also get a description of this rock outcropping, a statue, where obscene acts could be committed on that, which God could not see. This last story is really upsetting to VRT, and it's also absent from a story by John V. Marsh. So, Glenn, I have a few questions I want to ask you here. First, what do you make of the way that Wolf is re-examining or asking the reader to re-examine our past experiences of these stories and of his own past work? This is something that Proust is notorious for doing in In Search of Lost Time, recontextualizing, re-examining the past. And it seems like Wolf is returning to this technique uh, by examining the past through multiple contexts, which was really absent in a story by John V. Marsh, but very present in Fifth Head of Cerberus. And then I want to ask if anything on this tour that we get in VRT 
helps you understand what's going on in a story by John V. Marsh any better or any revelations you had while reading this section of the story? Well, I'll start by just saying that it's still not clear to me what a story by John V. Marsh is, who wrote it, why that person wrote it, what its its function for that person is. But we're certainly seeing here that Wolf is playing games with his audience by giving us the reverse journey that Sandwalker makes and by showing us the details that Dr. Marsh is seeing and here in particular being shown by the Trenchards and stories that the Trenchards are telling Dr. Marsh. We are seeing how those things show up in a story by John V. Marsh. And he's he's begging us to consider that what we have in a story is a fantastical synthesis of all of these elements as perhaps Dr. Marsh or perhaps someone else is attempting to combine all of the information at his disposal and imagine what that society was like. Imagine what these people were like. But it is becoming clearer and clearer to us that these things are fabrications and that this exercise of trying to empathize with alien people who are extinct or perhaps never existed at all is predicated on, founded on uh, a pack of lies that a, a con man has told somebody uh, in order to, to make a few bucks and to get some wine with his picnic lunch. Yeah. What's really jumping out to me in these stories is that the things that VRT seems to not like or that he has problems with don't make it into a story by John V. Marsh. The, the, the rock outcropping is one in particular that jumps out at me. But during our recap episode, I also mentioned that Eastwind was the hero of a story by John V. Marsh. I got the names confused, much like the confusion of their identity at the end of the story. It's Sandwalker who is the hero of a story by John V. Marsh. And the Eastwind is the one who Trenchard came, claims to be descended from. So I think there are two things to make of this kind of confusion where the identities are are swapped. At the end of a story, we see Sandwalker and Eastwind merging identities into Sandwalker. And whether the body is of Eastwind or Sandwalker at the end, the mind is Sandwalker's. We also know that in that story that this is something that could easily be discovered biologically because Eastwind was castrated as a child. But that seems to not matter as much either. The soul is Sandwalker's. I think we're seeing that the fact that Trenchard is saying that the Eastwind is a great ancestor of his, and he's the one who goes down and makes peace, and the fact that VRT hates his father and his loves his mother and, this, and his living situation is so terrible, indicates to us also that he couldn't have Eastwind be the, sto- the hero of a story by John V. Marsh, and yet it could be the body of the east wind in some way who does greet the arrival of the new visitors on frenchman's landing yes i think this particular detail is really suggestive that it is vrt who has been imprisoned on saint croix and has taken dr marsh's identity and it is the person who in that prison writes a story by john v marsh 
Because during this tour, when they come upon the hourglass, VRT jumps into this pit to demonstrate to Dr. Marsh that even though it's actually not very high, the characteristic of the sand, the character of the sand makes it impossible to get out. And it is Trenchard then who has to throw a rope down into that pit so that VRT and Dr. Marsh, who has also jumped in there, uh, can get out. And this is, this mirrors a detail in a story in which it is Eastwind who is doing that. Trenchard claims to be the descendant of Eastwind. I think it is clear to us, as you say, that VRT despises his father. And I think that it would be fair to say, right, that VRT is going to be identifying with the character of Sandwalker as he is writing that story and having some kind of Oedipal thing going on here while he's kind of working out his relationship with his father as he's writing about these marsh men abducting uh, children of the free people and uh, castrating them, abusing them, which is something that he clearly is suffering at the hands of his father. So there is clearly some psychological uh, work at play in the construction of this story, if indeed VRT has written it. I think if we take that as an assumption for now to continue our discussion, it's also odd to me that there are no fathers in a story by John V. Marsh. There's no meaningful father figure other than the old wise ones, say, or the ghost in the cave, the priest. There's no living male figure who is fulfilling the role of a father other than the respect and homage paid to the living trees, which are the fathers, not men. And to me, that's an interesting detail. This is a a child who's yearning for his mother who ran away and abandoned him and imagines that he wishes it was his father who who would have left so he can continue to idolize his mother. Uh, right now, we're just speculating because we still got 35 pages of this book to read. I'm looking forward to really digging in hard on this uh, in our wrap-up episode of determining what the heck is going on with a story by John V. Marsh. But there is a lot more going on on this tour uh, as it relates to the existence of and characteristics of the Abos. Something I said in the recap is that I think that Dr. Marsh is making a massive and frankly kind of willful mistake when he analyzes the, the, the tree temple or tree observatory as being definitive proof that abos existed and that they were a, a sentient creature. By his calculation, and we just have to accept that maybe he's done that correctly, these trees were 140 earth years old when they were cut down. Uh, And to him, this indicates that Abos must have planted them a century or more before humans arrived. But humans have been on St. Anne for nearly 200 years. So the only way that these trees can predate human arrival is if they were cut down a long time ago, almost at the exact moment that humans landed on St. Anne. But Frenchman's Landing is a new town. It's only recently that people have constructed a town in this area. We know that although there are some French-speaking farmers in the countryside, uh, and even a little settlement out there called Frogtown, Frenchman's Landing is an English-speaking foundation. 
Uh, and Dr. Hacksmith even talks about how 20 years ago, they all dreamed that it would become a major city and that they had all these plans for museums and sports arenas and such. And all of this suggests that Dr. Hacksmith was one of the founders, or at least one of the very early arrivals in the new town of Frenchman's Landing. And so this town has to be only a few decades old. We also know, perhaps even more definitively, that the railroad, something that would use wooden ties, was brand new when Dr. Hagsmith arrived those 20 years ago. Uh, Trenchard himself says that when he started his sightseeing business, there were far more trees still standing. All of which means that if these trees were cut down to build Frenchman's Landing or and the railroad, which are the only things they would be cut down to build, uh, even if that happened 40 years ago and these trees were 140 years old, that still means that these trees were not there when the first humans arrived. And uh, so these trees, if they were planted by an intelligent creature, they were planted by humans for some reason, uh, perhaps a reason that was recorded in the log that was destroyed during the war, but perhaps not for any reason that was recorded at all. But I can think of a lot of reasons why humans would make this so-called tree temple here on St. Anne uh, in their first decades of colonization, such as to commemorate the place where they landed, which it turned out was not a great place for them to build a city. So they went to 500 kilometers elsewhere on the coast to build Roncevaux and all these other places to build these other cities, but wanted to commemorate this somehow. Uh, Dr. Marsh is completely wrong in thinking that this is proof that Abos did this. It's proof that humans did this, but he just needs so desperately for there to be abos that he will willfully misinterpret his own evidence. Right. He's doing a bit of natural science here. He's making a claim that he can use the same methods that people on Earth use to identify the age of trees and tree species in order to identify the age of what is potentially an alien tree species that to me is is the beginning of his slide into unreason here his his spurious claim he is never without his a field guide to the wildlife and animals of saint anne which you could assume might also have some trees in it as well and we get a description of how alien the seashells are on the beach moments before we're talking about these super familiar trees. There's nothing alien about them. That's something that also jumped out to me, is there's a real contrast in his experiences. The seashells he identifies as being alien as anything else, but this tree temple, he thinks he can make assumptions about them based on earth science and how you age trees. There could be something completely different going on here. It's unlikely, but it could be the case that these trees grow in a way that is alien to the way trees grow on Earth. But when you combine that with the claim that the Abos are a dendritic culture, that's a claim that goes to support the sacredness of this place because they would need to use wood to build whatever they're working with. Yeah, I mean, you're suggesting that one ring doesn't necessarily equal one year, though that's what it does for trees here on Earth. These could be totally different trees. One ring could equal 10 years or 20 years or could be about something completely different. There might not be any way to really calculate years from tree rings. He is certainly making an assumption 
about that, though it is possible that he does have some information in that guide that indicates that people have already asked this question and have determined that, yes, in fact, that's what they do. Uh, but I, I can second your complaints about the r- real seriousness with which he's applying scientific rigor here by saying that he clearly also hasn't gone and inspected all of the trees in this site. One, he's taken the tree ring measurements of 1% of the trees here, which is because he can't walk the circuit of nine miles that this circumference is while they're out here on this sightseeing trip. So how does he even really have the measurements that he has about how far apart all the trees are, how many trees there even are if they're stumps? Uh, How does he really even know what the diameter of the circle is? I have questions about how he knows all of that based on spending, what, an hour here having a picnic and not being able to cover this vast distance. Meanwhile, he's utterly dismissive of the work that other anthropologists have done about this site that is presumably based on the work that people have done who have actually walked all of this distance and taken precise measurements and taken photographs and possibly even videos He's dismissive of all of that because of what he observed with the naked eye during the course of a picnic while he's drinking a bottle of wine. Yeah, I mean, he is a great scientist. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if this, I wonder if this bolsters the Inquisitioner Constant's claim that this, even this journal of Dr. Marsh's is a fabrication, Well, certainly, I share many of the concerns that Constant, the interrogator, shares, though I don't think that Constant is someone I would like to go have a drink with. Yeah, it just goes to show you that the lengths to which Wolf is really, for some reason, trying to put the reader of this story in a mind to question heroism, ethics, morality, the, the type of person they are. And it's a very strange method to me as a writer, what Wolf is trying to do maybe as a, as a moral of this story. Though as we've seen in the past works in this collection, there may be no good people at all anywhere in this planetary system. Yeah, so far it's still just married all. Just married all, my old friend. <laughs> I think about her often. Well, speaking of Fifth Head, we actually get information that corroborates much of what happens in that novella in this section. We get evidence that the play took place of the about the French colonists that the children put on, uh, the existence of the Maison du Chien, the timing of John Marsh's visit, and All of that's to say that we get all this corroboration of one story and all of this other information that that undermines the verifiable underpinnings of a story by John V. Marsh. And so I have to ask you, Glenn, what do you think Wolf is doing here by creating the contrast of the in-world truth of these novellas in VRT? I think with Wolf, always one of the answers to these types of questions has to be, He's playing a game. He's having fun. He's laughing as he's doing this to us. But I do also think that he is very seriously exploring the different types of truths that we can find in stories. So we are 
discovering here in VRT that the memoir account of the fifth head of Cerberus is true, at least in its kind of factual skeleton, even if some of the subjective interpretations might not turn out to, to really be true. Whereas that factual edifice that supports a story by John V. Marsh is really evaporating quickly here. We are seeing that it is either a complete fabrication or is the result of someone's belief in other people's fabrications, a sort of synthesis of those fabrications. But they are both exploring things that are true. They are exploring experiences about the human condition that are true. And I think that that is something that Wolf is, uh, as himself, a constructor of made-up stories that explore the human condition is particularly interested in. So although we can't say that a story by John V. Marsh is in any way proof that abos ever existed, that abos are real in any way, there's still value to that story. That story still tells us something about what it means uh, to be a, a person here on our world. And I have to think that's something that Wolf is underscoring. And even more, it might be a story about what it means to be on St. Anne or be a prisoner in San Croix, the yearning for freedom, this idea of the free people, the imagination, the dream of the past, of the, of the perfect and paradisical past, the desire to return to simplicity and beauty and just surviving well. Not maybe not flourishing, but living above even the stage of a prisoner, the being of a prisoner. I think that's an excellent answer. And I think you're right in saying that Wolf is really probably interested in those questions himself. But in this story, he's putting the reader in the position of the person who's asking those questions. And I think something we'll talk about in our final wrap-up episode is just how playful or serious the title a story by john v marsh is i think it's not been taken at face value (laughs) that it is a story and we'll be discussing whether or not it can be taken on face value as well yeah and we're, we're gonna have a lot more to say about a story on its own its connection with these other novellas and particularly the the parallels between a story by john v marsh and the fifth head of cerberus not least of which is that they both seem to be narratives written by people who've spent time in this prison and may be prison narratives in some sense well i can't wait to get into that but for now, let's pivot to talking about some of these broader topics that I brought up earlier, namely government, theories of government, biology, and slavery. The first thing I want to do is examine what we learn about the government on San Croix and the political conflicts that we're beginning to see emerge that seem to allow this government to do anything to any citizen under any pretense. This government that doesn't believe that they are encamped and armed against themselves, though we learned just a few pages ago that there's a movement potentially called the 5th of September, who is an armed activist group on San Croix, who is looking to 
have a overthrow the government in some way. Their paranoia of every foreigner and traveler who comes into their country as a spy. There's a lot that is showing us that from the at least the point of view of a prisoner, the proof of the type of people that are arrested only demonstrates the fragility of the power that the government actually holds on the planet. That's a structural problem. That's a cultural problem. But we don't really know what type of government this is. So what I want to do is reread, actually, the sections that, that you read uh, and just start with the note that we are told that, that it's a centralized planetary government. And this text can be found on pages 204 and 205 of the 1994 Orb Edition. You did a great reading of this, so I'm, I don't know that I'm going to try a repeat performance, but uh, <laughs> well, I'm we, going to read it to remind everybody of what we were reading. Well, we can invite listeners to uh, write in and uh, say who, uh, who who did it best in the, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the winner will buy the loser the next round of beer. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair plan. So it starts on 204, when we know that Marsh, the prisoner, doesn't even know why he's been arrested or what he's even really doing in prison. This is what the interrogator says about the government. Truth is something which is to be had from us, not from you. Ours is the most remarkable government in the history of mankind, because we... And only we have accepted as a working principle what every sage has taught and every government has feigned to accept, the power of truth. And because we do, we rule as no other government has ruled. You have often asked me what your crime is, why we detain you. It is because we know you are lying. Do you understand what I am telling you? And then this bit about the government is picked up on the next page, uh, 205 by the interrogator. He says this, We are the only government upon whose word every man may rely absolutely. And because of that, we command infinite credit, infinite obedience, infinite respect. If we say to anyone, do this, and your reward will be such and such, there's no doubt in his mind that he will be rewarded. If we say villages breaking a certain ordinance will be burned to the ground, there is no doubt. We speak little, but every word drops like a weight of iron. I want us to combine this, these kinds of senses of power with the history of the planet where the government incorporated the rule of the French, the ruling class, into their own power structure, power hierarchy, in order to be ruled from abroad by a centralized power. You know, this to me sounds very much like Vichy France in World War II. It reeks of fascism and uh, it's just, it's, it's very dark. Those are the notes I'm kind of getting. Does this have the same sort of notes to you, Glenn, of fascism, of the history of World War II? And if it doesn't, what type of government do you think rules on St. Croix? And why do you think they're so concerned about St. Anne? Well, I want, I want to talk first about the parallels that you see here. I did not consider Vichy France at all. Uh, Vichy France, we should say, is the independent French government in southern France and in some of the colonies of the French Empire 
that was an ally of Nazi Germany after northern France was conquered and occupied by the Germans uh, in uh, the early phases of the Second World War. And I think that the parallel that you're seeing is that Vichy France, the Vichy government, were Nazi collaborators. They were allowed to continue to exist as an independent state if they complied with the wishes of Nazi Germany in doing many things, such as rounding up its Jewish population and, and deporting them for extermination. I didn't notice that parallel here, but you're absolutely right that what's being pointed to here explicitly is a French-speaking upper and middle class collaborating with a foreign enemy who has conquered them in order to maintain their own position and in doing so are actively enslaving other members of their own society. That's the the price. Constant, when he describes what's going on here, talks about the family of a, a banker, for example, a upper middle class, a bourgeoisie family who has the means to buy their freedom back from their conquerors at the expense of enslaving, say, the guards and janitors and clerks that worked at that bank who have now become literal slaves owned by the state in the aftermath of this war. The parallel couldn't be more clear. I can't believe I missed it. It's amazing. Uh, I'm so glad that you've pointed that out. That absolutely 100% has to be what Wolf is thinking about here. That Wolf here is exploring why a person would betray his neighbor for his own material well-being. Uh, perhaps we're getting a little bit of uh, the same things that he explored in Paul's treehouse here. Yeah, we're seeing the truth wander from voice to voice in this story, that being a despicable human me being doesn't mean you can't have objective reasoning when you're examining documents, that being an interrogator of prisoners who is supportive of a fascist government that uses language like Nazi Germany did, the greatest government of all of mankind. This resurgence of the Third Reich is, is absolutely an exploration of this notion or, a, or a, a propagandized term used to describe we are the best government. We are the, you know. And I think I have an answer to the question you just pointed out when we get to slavery, why somebody would sell their neighbor into slavery at the cost of their own freedom or why somebody would sell their neighbor into slavery in order to maintain their own freedom. This government is just awful, though. They don't believe there's anybody against them, but everybody's under constant suspicion. It is the paradox of ideology at play. Ide ideology always operates on uh, paradox. Raw ideology does. And Wolf is, as we've seen, an expert even in operationaries, of dismantling and looking at how these paradoxes function to maintain systems of power or illegitimate power, maybe even in his own mind, or power that's only legitimized by the fact that it has force behind it. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And I'm so glad we read operationaries because I think that Wolf is hiding all of the work that he did in the foreground of that novel in the background of this one. And it's just fantastic to see how Wolf has mastered some of these really dark workings of the 20th century, which he is still right in the middle of as far as time 
real time goes, uh, that we're reading this in 2018, that all of this is on his mind. And he has taken it very, very seriously as a thinker and as a writer. Yes. And I just don't think that I really noticed this or, or gave this part of the novel its due attention before we had read Operation Aries. This is my fifth time reading this book. And I really just kind of overlooked this stuff because I was much more, because I was always much more interested in the question of the abos and questions about identity, all of the, the kind of sci-fi elements, uh, the, the speculative fiction elements that are happening here. But now that we've read Operation Aries, this stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. And I have to say that absolutely, the character here of Constant, this interrogator, he is speaking so much with like the same rhythm and same relationship with the truth and same devotion to ideology as the captain from Operation Ares. This is a, a recycled character, if ever there was one. And this time Wolf really, really got it right. Yeah, let's not make any mistake. This is a much better book than Operation Ares by an order of magnitude. They're not even in the same league. And and certainly the way that Wolf is looking at the politics here is is significantly more sophisticated, both in the execution, in terms of the, the storytelling, but also I think even in the way that he's exploring different political ideologies. In Operation Ares, it was clear that there were good guys and there were bad guys. And this was a story about how the good guys were going to be triumphant by pitting the bad guys against each other. But everything here seems to be shades of gray, despite the emphasis on the blueness and greenness of these planets. There's so much gray going on here. And the government, both of San Qua and St. Anne, seem to be not governments that we would choose to have, but they are also different. They are substandard. They are bad in different ways. And I think the wolf is juxtaposing them here in a way to get us to think about the different types of police states or different types of totalitarian states that exist around the world in the late 1960s or early 1970s. And I think something that might be useful to do here would be to contrast what we know about the governments of San Qua and St. Anne. Uh, the government on San Qua, for example, does not care about ethnic identity. It is not that kind of a totalitarian state or that kind of a fascist state. It's not about nationalism, but it is very concerned with class identity and has essentially created a new multi-ethnic group identity around the ownership of humans. And this is an identity that transcends these differences of language uh, and possibly even of religion here. On the other hand, the government of St. Anne doesn't permit slavery and, and may even have some kind of government-run healthcare system for citizens. But on St. Anne, the French-speaking survivors of the war have been excluded from power structures. Certainly, this means government, uh, but probably it also includes other types of economic and social power. Um, and it, it, it's possible even that the French-speaking population on St. Anne is not even fully enfranchised, that they're not actually citizens. They may have a separate set of laws, all sorts of other restrictions, even though they remain legally free, which is to say that they are not explicitly the property of another person or institution. And 
you know, we have to think perhaps even about the situation of the Trenchards here. Why are they so poor in a society in which we have this story about a, a woman going to get a new arm from the hospital? What we see on St. Anne is the French primarily being something like subsistence farmers. They can continue to work the land, they can survive, but they're not in Roncevaux. They're not participating in the power structures. That's a pretty typical victor's right in war, though. You typically don't allow the uh, previous enemy to retain positions of power unless you are absolutely certain of your authority. This is odd in terms of colonialism, as we'll call it, the second wave that comes, in that it's it's a total conquering. It's a conquering. And I think when you're conquering other nations, you do have to replace their whole system of power and authority and put your own people in there. And because this is a resource-rich a resource rich planet, there's still, we learn, so much that's unexplored and so much so many animals, that people can live here basically unhindered without the need for government oversight. And I think that's kind of what's going on on St. Anne. I think the paranoia we see from the interrogator about St. Anne being encamped against itself in some way, that we see all this military power, is really propaganda about the fear for a war between the two planets, because we see no evidence of real rebellion on St. Anne in this story. But we do see evidence of military power, and I think that's the real fear that San Croix has from St. Anne. Yeah, they do also seem to be both uh, types of police states, but different types of police states as well. St. Anne, we've got this explicit and, and obvious military presence, right? We've got this airship on patrol that really scares the heck out of the the trenchards and we also learn in this section that uh the it's the military police who work as the customs officials on saint anne they're not the the sorts of civilians who say do customs in in most parts of of, of earth in 2018 uh, san croix on the other hand seems to not so much have this obvious heavy military presence though we do know that there's a a citadel and there's a garrison from the perspective of the narrator of the fifth head of Cerberus, number five, that stuff is all in the background. We don't see soldiers really in any way. We we hear their like wake up uh, sound at uh, the trumpets at some point, but that's it. They exist almost only as this auditory experience for him. But we are clearly seeing that there's all this secret police stuff going on, which is also in the first novella as well. We also clearly see that there's such a uh, that there's a whole category of crimes here on San Qua called political crimes, and these are a major concern, something that is a crime against the state, not so much a, a crime against another citizen or a crime against another person. Uh, we know that uh, the maitre of the Maison de Chienne is you know, paying off these secret police. We learned that really on like the second page of the book. We didn't make a big deal of that at the time because we didn't have all this other information. But clearly for the narrator, that is just a fact of their society, that there are secret police who have to be bribed if you want to run a brothel or possibly run any kind of business at all. There's the talk here about burning villages and controlling the, the truth. So there's 
really kind of a juxtaposition here of of a, a kind of brutal and brutish, obvious type of police state on St. Anne and this secretive, uh, truth-manipulating, working-in-the-shadows type of police state on San Croix. So again, really two different types of horrific state that we can get here in the 20th century and, and things that we know that Wolf is concerned might the United States might turn into if we as citizens are not careful here in 1970. I think that leads perfectly into his discussion about slavery. Because I think his theories of slavery are really theories about economy and Wolf's desire for this third way, as we've discussed. I want to just reread again the section of the story that talks about this theory of slavery. And I just want to point out here that Marsh or the prisoner in this interrogation and VRT are the only ones that call the ABO the free people. And this is a desired state of being for the prisoner, but also for VRT as well. And, you know, it could be that they're out spending a couple years in the back of beyond and they really do strike up a genuine camaraderie and respect for one another and have these talks over the campfire about freedom. And it's entirely possible that John Marsh changes his terminology, though it's unlikely because I don't think there's room in this story for that. But I will read this section and then uh, have a little bit to say about it and then ask you some questions, Glenn. This is on page 210 of the 1994 Orb edition. This opens with uh, Dr. Marsh saying that the interrogator was saying that it was better to be a slave on San Croix than to be free on St. Anne. It's classic propaganda technique. The interrogator responds like this. Oh, no. I would never tell you that, doctor. It is not true. No, I must have been telling you that on San Croix, some men are free. In fact, most men are free. While on St. Anne, and for that matter, Earth, most are slaves. They are not called by that title, possibly because they are worse off. A slave's owner has a sum of money tied up in him and is obliged to take care of him. If he becomes ill, for example, to see that he receives treatment. On St. Anne and on Earth, if he does not have sufficient cash to pay for his own treatment, he is left to recover or die. The prisoner says, I believe that most of the nations of Earth have government programs to provide medical care for the people. The interrogator says, then you see who their owners are. And then this discourse picks up again on page 215. Uh, and this is the paragraph I was talking about that we didn't really go into in the recap, where I think this is the speech that breaks this prisoner. And this is where we get his kind of broken relationship with time. He, the interrogator constant has been pointing out all the inconsistencies on in Dr. Marsh's story. And then he says this to Dr. Marsh or the prisoner, which I can't, I just want to call him the prisoner all the time. Uh, the interrogator says this, and here you sit and tell me lies about earth where you have clearly never been and pretend you do not understand that it is only by possessing slaves that any man can be truly free. All this, the captivity, the deceptions, the questionings are new to you now, but they are old to me. 
Do you know what is going to happen to you? You will be returned to your cell. And afterward, you will be brought here again. And I will talk to you again as I'm doing now. And when I am finished, I will go home and have dinner with my wife. And you will go back to your cell. In this way, the months will go past and the years. My wife and my children and I will go to the islands next June. But when we return, you will still be here. More pallid and dirty and thin than ever. And in time, when the best part of your life is over and your health is ruined, we will have the truth and no more lies. Take him. Bring in the next. All you have to do to get out of here is tell me that there are five lights. <laughs> there are four lights, Glenn. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> this is a absolutely powerful speech, which of course did remind me of that scene in Star Trek. Also the other famous science fiction interrogation scene from Babylon 5. This is better than either of those are, but I encountered it last. Yeah, great stuff going on here. Yeah, though I'm going to stand by Chain of Command as uh, some of the greatest two episodes of TV ever made. It's so good. I won't dispute it. Let's be clear. I, I still have Star Trek tattoos and no Gene Wolfe tattoos. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably just a year away from happening, though. Still looking for suggestions. <laughs> so I think what's going on here in terms of slavery, what jumped into my mind is the warning found in the New Testament uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 24 which reads this, it says this, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This, no one can serve two masters. This phrase is translated as serve. It means no one can be a slave to do masters. That's the, that's what the language originally indicates mammon of course is money or riches you can't both pursue money and riches which is a means to power and love god that is what christ is saying here in this in this text so this just jumped into my mind but i think this is all caught up in the governmental system and and the language wolf uses there in the last speech to say the only one the only way a person can be a master is if they own a slave. It's purely about economics. It's purely about capital and assets. So I want to ask you if you think Wolf is making a theological point here about the nature of our society, which is me, which at this point in, in history in the early 70s is making its first moves into global capitalism, this pursuit of capital at all costs. And we also see the connections here to, to Vichy France, where you maintain your status and power by taking it away from other people. And it's not real freedom. You are a slave to a second master. You know, to, to, to push that question just a little further, Glenn, do you think that the leaders of St. Croix are somehow using the assumption of the absence of God in order to make their laws? You know, especially as we've seen that Port Mimizan is Wolf's depiction of hell. Or... Am I just way off base and something else entirely is going on with the discourse around slaves in this section? In other words, what do you think is going on here? I hadn't really thought about a religious reading of this part of the text, but I think that you're onto something here. 
we really have come down pretty hard on the notion that San Qua is hell and that St. Anne is the Eden part of purgatory here in Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy. And along those lines, then, it is interesting to note that the hell planet is the one with the slavery, and a slavery that is instituted by people essentially choosing to sell their neighbors, people uh, with whom they have been in a community into slavery as soon as they are conquered. So we, that slavery on the hell planet juxtaposed with the planet that is the fallen paradise, the, the planet that exists after Adam and Eve have have fallen in the Garden of Eden, showing us a world that, that doesn't have slavery, but that does have a mass of people who are living at a subsistence level, whose punishment now is to have to toil forever and to really gain nothing by it. I hadn't thought about that before, but I think that now that you pointed out, that's pretty clear. And this planet, St. Croix, which is, which is hell, or at least Port Mimizan is hell in particular, also sells their orphans into slavery. This is the opposite of the description of true religion in the book of James, which is to care for the widows and orphans, which is to say to restore those people to living under the proper rule of a household that protects them, right? The, the widow has lost her household and the orphan has lost their household. And God is the ruler of all households in this view of theology. And you're restoring these people to living under God's proper rule and order. And I think that this, this section about slavery is about how man is his own master. Those slaves are a part of every has household in, in classical descriptions of households and the laws of governing a household and all this sort of stuff you find in Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and um, classical philosophy. And, and, and in the letters of Paul. Right, exactly. That is all under the assumption that God has ordered this a certain way. What Constant is saying is that the people who care for you for your body are your master. He's saying that who pays for your health care is your master. That is one way we can determine who a master is. We've seen in the past two books of this trilogy of novellas a lot of questions about the relationship between the soul and the body. And the soul, I think, is God's in some way in these stories. At least that's clear in a story by John V. Marsh. This concern only for the body, to me, really scans as being a reinforcement of the idea that God has entirely abandoned this planet and let the government run its own course. We do, And we do have the stark contrast on St. Anne. And I, I have to wonder if on St. Croix... VRT would be allowed to be living with his father under an overturned boat, or if he would actually be one of these orphans who becomes enslaved for the good of the state and the, the good of the, the elite who really comprise the state on San Croix. Whereas on St. Anne, 
not only is he retaining his legal freedom, he's he's going to school, Armstrong School, we learn. I, I assume is named after Neil Armstrong. And and he's also in his spare time going to the public library and reading. That's absolutely not something that slaves are going to be doing on San Croix. So there's there is this clear contrast here between the the hell and and simply the fallen state that Wolf would say you and I Wolf himself everyone here is in the United States of America is living in as well. If if anything St. Anne in some ways resembles the United States of America more uh, more than any of these speculative worlds I think that we see Wolf work in again. Right, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's not the worst thing in in the world as we've seen to have a free population with access to education and healthcare that's provided by the government even if you're only able to exist at a subsistence level. It's not ideal, but it's also not the absolute worst way of being. And what's happening on San Croix is they're saying that is actually worse because your master is hidden from you. But that's only allowing for that one particular ideology to exist in that system. There are multiple modes of being free if you are insold or you hold the belief that people are insold. And while not everybody is ever going to be able to live at the same level, the focus purely on the body as an asset, as the only agent responsible, as the only agent of being, as opposed to something more abstract or reaching for a higher universal, is a type of hell, I think, in Wolf's estimation here. Though we know San Croix has a great library, we also know that slaves are somehow diminished. Their mind is diminished in some respect, or at least some of the slaves are And again, that's just a focus on the raw material that if a person behaves in a way we don't want, we can alter the material and they won't behave that way anymore. Port Mimizan, I think, is a a raw sort of materialist and materialistic society as opposed to St. Anne, which allows for multiple ideas at least to flourish uh, in the same under the same government. We've been seeing time and time again in this novel that Wolf is interested in this contrast between body and spirit or body and soul or body and mind. And you're right here that Constant is making a kind of elision or equation or or maybe even confusion uh, between economic dependence and legal freedom or legal servitude. He's suggesting that because a person is beholden to a, a job in order to get money in order to pay uh, a landlord or you know pay a bank for a mortgage uh, to to pay a grocery store for your weekly food allotment that that equates to slavery and you know we're people with jobs who maybe we there are maybe there are other ways we'd like to spend our time doing more podcasting and such and it can sometimes feel that way but that is not the same thing as being the legal property of another person that is not the same thing as not having equality under the law that is not the same thing as having choices about your relationship with 
the people upon whom you depend for material wealth. And Constant is defending his moral position or the moral position of his society by falsely equating the two things. He's he's taking two ends of the broad continuum of dependence upon which we all live and saying that they somehow wrap around and meet such that the only difference between them is a, a matter of, of labels. And this, again, is just how they are manipulating the language in, in order to control what is true and what is not true. But this statement that he makes is completely false. And and when we see this in societies that are massive slave societies, the lengths to which enslaved or enserfed people are willing to go to in order to get their legal freedom, that they are willing, in fact, to make themselves more economically dependent in order to achieve this legal freedom. This defense of slavery is, I think, a warning from Wolf to his readers. And it's a reminder that a man is more than his body. Uh, you know, there's there's other kind of warnings in the New Testament that says, do not, you know, fear the one who can take away your body. You know, you should fear the one who can demolish your soul. That's a paraphrase. The idea is in there, though. And this is this society is just rooted in ideas of the body and not about what it means for a man to flourish, but how a man can be useful to the government. Um, and it's not a society I'd like to live in at all. I'd rather be a subsistence level farmer in frog town than any citizen on St. Croix under any circumstances. Yes. As much as I would like to see the pink sun, I'm I'm not sure I want to go live on San Qua, uh, at least not until this regime is overthrown. On on this topic of freedom and slavery, I just want to uh, emphasize a term that we've been encountering, a label that we've been encountering, totally out of this context. I don't know what to make of it if we put it in this context, so I just want to put it out here to you, Brandon, and to listeners who might be able to chime in on the forum with something that, something to say about it. But it is also in this section that we are getting this insistence by VRT that the sentient people he identifies with are called the free people. It's not clear to me in what way they are free that the people of the the marshland, the people of the Meadowmeres are not free, that they're the not free people. That's not clear yet. It's maybe also not clear to me from a story by John V. Marsh. But these uses of free in parallel here in this section jumped out to me, and I think that there has to be something to be made of it. Right now, my kind of working theory on this notion of the free people is thematic in nature, that VRT is always will and has always dreamed of an ideal form of freedom. This is his mother's people. And it's hard for me to imagine a circumstance in which you call a, a group of people the free people, and yet at the same time you're saying, I'm trying to get them human rights. I don't know if the free people is what the that group of abos refers to themselves as, though that would be very 
odd because that would mean that they had a sense of being not free, that there was another way. And so another way of being that wasn't about freedom. And so to translate whatever notions they were using to describe themselves as free would be an enormous challenge, I feel like. I think it's the dream of a of a sad, abused, isolated, and lonely boy, um, not unlike number five, who doesn't dream of freedom, but VRT does. But we'll see. This is going to be an important conversation to revisit in our wrap-up episode, for sure. Yeah, we have quite a bit to go before before we get there but i cannot wait i'm really loving the way this story is coming together there's one more thing one more question i want to ask which i promised at the end of our recap episode and it is what closed out our recap episode we're going to talk here about dalo's law uh and i'm going to read the top of page 217 in the edition we've been using to just refresh everybody's memory of how the prisoner talks about Dalo's Law. As we went through in the recap, this person who's dropped the facade a little bit, I think it's clear that it's not John Marsh. I think we can say that with some certainty. Talks about why he can't write with a pen and how he holds his pen between his uh, second and third fingers. And I think we've all been in elementary school and seen kids hold a pen or a pencil this way. But for some reason, his talk about this, the trauma he experiences about learning how to write, and the fact that he wants his thumb to be free to do whatever it wishes, gets him all thinking about this law. So I'm going to read what he writes. Starts at the bottom of page 216. He says this, do you know Dalo's law? From his studies of the carapaces of fossil turtles, the great Belgian formulated the law of irreversibility of evolution. And then he's citing something. It's written in italics here. An organ which degenerates during evolution never reacquires its original size. And an organ which disappears never reappears. If the offspring return to a mode of life in which the vestigial organ had an important function, the organ does not return to its original state, but the organism develops a substitute. Something has to do with the hands. I think we've seen quite a lot about the crippled hands of the father. And it is possible that it is arthritis, as is suggested in the story, but it could be something else. It could be a genetic problem that VRT inherits from his father and refuses to believe is an inheritance from his father. And so creates a belief that it is the fact that he is an abo and can't use tools from his mother's side. And that his thumb operates somehow independently from the rest of his hand, that he's got maybe a neurological disease. And so he's thinking that his true form doesn't have hands. It has arms like a tree, it has limbs. It's dendritic, but it doesn't have hands. And his hands are a kind of mistake that is the combination of his birth and his, uh, from being born a half abo in his mind. The idea here with Dulles Law is that when an organism has a, a, a feature and then loses that feature and then 
discovers that it actually needs that feature again in order to adapt to new circumstances or really to old circumstances that have reappeared, environmental circumstances, I should say, that the feature that will develop again, even though it is meant to fit that same need, is going to be different. That seems to suggest that VRT is thinking about his hands as being that as being the redevelopment of something that his species, the abos, as he thinks, used to possess, then lost because they didn't need it anymore, but now find themselves needing again. Uh, but they're they're not quite the same. They're not quite right somehow. Presumably, this is envisioning a time when abos predominant form was as a humanoid creature that had hands and needed them. Then they were something else for a while. And now they find themselves wanting to be humanoid again, because they're adapting to the presence of humans on the planet. And, and everything else is fine, except for the hands. I find that unsatisfying. But that seems to be what he's referring to. Yeah, I think it is unsatisfying. I think it's because he is confabulating like his father. He, except it's 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 worse because his father knows he's a fraud, but VRT believes he's something he is not, and I think that that is where all of this conflict lies in the character of VRT. VRT, I think, genuinely believes he's he's John Marsh and always has been. Um, you know. And and he confabulates to cover the gaps in the truth, in the exposed falsehoods of that story. And I think that that is what's going on here. Time and again, throughout this novel, we're seeing VRT as a person who is looking for an alternative to reality. He is looking for a better world, uh, a better explanation about why he is the way he is and why society treats him or has treated him, why his family has treated him the way that it has. This is how he is coping. I mean, it's a coping mechanism for him to think that he is an abbo and that that's, that's something that makes him special and that his actual deficiencies are a part of that specialness. Right. And to be clear, if he is John V. Marsh, which I think at this point in the story, we can say with some definitiveness, once again, that he is, he is now confabulating a new reason of why his hands don't work right. He is perhaps telling a story where he was beat by ugly old women that traumatized him because he has a, just a different way of writing. But that is something we are going to have to uncover or not in later episodes as the story unfolds for us. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you can, please become a supporter on Patreon to help us inch closer to our goal of publishing episodes of this show every week and also to get access to some really great bonus episodes. As I said before, and I'll say again, 
We'd love for you to join us in the forums and really enlarge the conversation and the discourse around what we've covered in this story. That's what we're really here to do. We want to make we want to enlarge your enjoyment of reading Wolf with us. We certainly love it. So please join us in the forums. Start a new post if you don't see anybody discussing what you want to discuss. Next time, we'll cover pages 217 through 231 of the 1994 Orb Edition, a pretty long chunk of the book. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>